What's going on, Law Nation? Welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, your favorite place for learning about the world of alternative passive investments so that you can practice when you want to and not because you have to. Now, if you're ready to kick that billable hour to the curb, start by going to attorneybydesign.com to download the Freedom Blueprint, which will also get you access to partner with us on one of our next passive real estate investments. All right, let's talk about the highest and best use of your time. We've talked about active versus passive income, and for good reason, they are completely different. They're on opposite sides of the spectrum. When we talk about active income, we're talking about your job as an attorney, as a doctor or a business owner, where you trade your time in for money out. Depending on your skill set, background, education, work ethic, etc. You know, this could be a great use of your time or it could be a terrible one. But when most people think about getting into real estate investing, they're torn. Should you do a fix and flip like you saw on HGTV? Should you invest in a REIT like your financial advisor Charles Schwab told you to do? Should you buy a single family rental or invest in a syndication? There are endless options so I can understand why it's so confusing. Well, start with this. Ask yourself, what's the highest and best use of my time? If you're thinking about doing an HGTV fix and flip and you're a partner at a big law firm, for example, is that flip really the best use of your time? And, and don't be mistaken, a flip is transactional and it is active. So will you make more per hour on that fix and flip than you would at your job? After you factor in the learning curve, the deal sourcing, the headaches, what it takes away from your job, and everything else, it, it's not even close. Unless you truly love doing it, which some people do, it just doesn't make sense for high income earners. You should be focusing on transforming the income you earn actively into passive income streams. At different levels on the passive scale, that could very well be a single family rental or an Airbnb or it could be passive investments into commercial syndications. But if you truly want to obtain financial freedom as quickly as possible, don't create more time-consuming activities that aren't as fruitful as the active income stream that you already have. Focus on passive investments until you are financially free, and then you will have the freedom to transition or not into an, any active activity you have a passion for. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Jay Scott of Bigger Pockets fame. Jay is an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and the co-host of the Bigger Pockets business podcast. He has bought, built, rehabbed, sold, syndicated, and held over $70 million in residential property and currently owns several hundred units. Jay is the author of four best-selling books on real estate investing with sales of over 300,000 copies. Get really excited for this, folks. You're in for a treat. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra-wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Jay Scott, what's going on, brother? Welcome to the show. 
Thanks. Appreciate you having me uh, here, Seth. Absolutely, man. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day, man. Uh, we've got a little bit of history, but uh, let's jump into your history, man. What's your story? Tell us about your background. Take it back as far as you'd like to. Yeah, I'll keep it short because nobody really cares about what I used to do. Um, so I'm, I'm a tech guy by uh, education and, and former trade. I worked in Silicon Valley for a long time, uh, spent about 15 years uh, doing the, the, the engineering thing and the product management thing. Um, 2008, uh, decided to get married. My wife and I, she was in, in, in the tech world also. We decided to leave and do something different so we could start a family. We could focus on our family. Basically, we were both working ridiculous hours and it just wasn't sustainable if we wanted to start a family. So quit our jobs in 2008, uh, moved to the East Coast, ended up flipping houses. Um, long, boring story about how that started. Just kind of serendipitous. We didn't really plan it. Uh, never really considered real estate, but fell into flipping houses. Over the next eight years or so, we flipped about 400, 450 houses. Um, it was great. Um, it ended up being the, the next career we were looking for. It gave us the flexibility to kind of raise our kids and, and never have to miss a soccer game or a piano recital, um, which was fantastic. But then around 2017-ish, really got burned out on flipping houses. And that's when I started to look for some new stuff to do. So, um, and that, that kind of leads me into what I've been doing the last few years. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's a, that's a ton of houses you flip, man. I think that that's, you know, a lot of the folks have been in the game for a long time. They've heard you speak on, you know, for on bigger pockets and all that. So, you know, what attracted you originally to, to house flipping rather than, you know, buying holds or anything like that? So I'll be honest. Um, I don't love real estate. Um, I love business. I'm a business guy. So, um, uh, like when I was, even when I was in the tech world, I got my MBA and, and I did some business development and I moved from the engineering side to the product side where I could be more involved in the business stuff. Uh, and I'm, I'm a business guy by heart and that's what I love doing. So when it came to flipping houses for me, it was, I could have been buying and selling anything. It, it ended up being houses. And again, not an exciting story. I mean, literally the story was my wife was watching a show on HGTV um, with, uh, with, with some people flipping houses. And she said, let's give that a try. Um, just as kind of like a fun thing to do on the side while we were waiting for our wedding to come up. So it wasn't something that I ever thought about or planned to do. It just kind of happened. And so if it weren't flipping houses, if it would have been buying and selling something else, I would have opened a restaurant or I would have opened a retail store or who knows what I would have done. But for me, the challenge was in the business. It wasn't the real estate piece of it. And so um, I've always enjoyed the scaling part. So yeah, flipping a house is great. Flipping five houses is great. But I always wanted to know, how do I go from flipping five houses to flipping 50 houses in a year? Um, what are the systems and processes I have to put in place? And how do I build that type of business? That to me is what's exciting. And so for me, it's always been about not the, the real estate part of it, but about the building the business part of it. I love that, man. I don't think I've heard anyone just come out and say that, even though a lot of people are probably in the same boat as you, that, you know, you, you don't have to love real estate to recognize that it's a great business, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about your, your transition and what you're doing now, your current business, um, how you kind of progress from house living to what you're about to tell us about. Yeah. So 2017, I just got really burned out on flipping houses. Um, it was, it was good to us financially. Uh, we got good at it. I wrote a bunch of books on it. But I'll be honest, it was never fun. And um, as the years went on, it just ended up getting more tedious. I felt like 
I wasn't learning anything new. Um, it was just, it was, it was revising processes and, and creating new systems and it was fun, but I needed some new challenges. So 2017, I decided, okay, done with, done with flipping, um, actually went and started doing some business stuff. So I do some advisory work for some tech companies. I do some angel investing. And so for a few months, I actually considered getting out of real estate altogether, focusing on other business pursuits. But I actually, what I realized was that while I didn't like the nuts and bolts of real estate, I liked the mechanics of real estate. I loved the, the negotiation piece. I loved the, the asset management piece. I loved the putting deals together piece, and I was good at it. And so while I really didn't want to be flipping houses, I didn't want to, um, I, I didn't want to be involved in the day-to-day aspects of managing the, the projects, I enjoyed the deal part of, of real estate. And so in addition to that, after I stopped flipping, I had all this cash. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this cash? I was using it to flip houses. We were doing 50 houses a year. It's put a lot of cash to work. Now I had all this cash. I'm a control freak. I, I, inve- I do invest in other people's syndications, um, but I don't sleep well at night when all my money is being managed by other people. So I said, how do I kind of take back control of my, my own cash as well as kind of get back into real estate? What can I do in real estate that I would enjoy and that I could also deploy a bunch of my own cash? And what I realized was multifamily. That was a great opportunity. And I had been thinking about multifamily for a long time. But what I realized was from the syndication side of of multifamily, I could, one, I could have the control. I could be a general partner. I could control the deal. I could put the deal together. I could manage the deal. Um, But also I could come in on the limited partner side as an investor. And it was a great place to deploy my capital. So I could deploy my capital in deals that I had full control over. So 2017, I decided I wanted to get into multifamily, probably wanted to get into syndication. I reached out to a friend of mine, Ashley Wilson, who uh, managed a company called Bar Down Investments. Uh, she and her husband had started the company a couple of years earlier. They were doing exactly what I wanted to do. And so I reached out to Ashley and I said, hey, I would love to learn multifamily. I don't expect you to like just take all this time and teach me so I can go off and be your competitor. Um, but here's what I am willing to do if you're willing to do this. Um, I will come work for you for a year. And in that year, you've got all my time, you've got all my energy, you've got all my knowledge, you've got all my contacts, I'll put money into your deals, whatever it takes. Um, You mentor me for a year, you've got my commitment for a year. After a year, we can figure out if like, there's a place for me on your team, or if I'll go off and do my own thing. But basically, uh, let's work together for a year. And she loved that idea. I mean, um, I, I think she liked the fact that I was really good with the systems and the processes and the operation stuff. Um, and I obviously loved the fact that I could jump into a team that was high functioning, already owned a lot of properties and was, was doing deals. So for the next year, I worked with her team. Um, it took about a year and a half before we finally did a deal. Um, but, uh, 2020, just before COVID, we started putting together a deal. Uh, that deal went really well. Ashley and I realized that we were like, just, we made a great team. We had a bunch of complementary skills, the things that she was really good at, I wasn't, the things I was really good at, she wasn't. Uh, it, it was just a, a good partnership. Around the same time, her husband decided that he didn't really want to be doing real estate anymore. He kind of wanted to be a stay-at-home dad. He liked helping with the business. He ran the underwriting team and he did a lot of the, the analytics, but he didn't want to be a partner in the business anymore. So about a year and a half ago, Ashley came to me and said, hey, would you want to join me and be a partner in the business? So 2020, 2021-ish, 
Ashley and I joined forces. She and I now run Bar Down Investments, and we do value-add multifamily all around the country. That's great, man. You said you weren't having fun anymore. You're having fun now? I'm having a ton of fun. And I think the big difference between then and now is when you're flipping houses, flipping houses is a very, it's a solitary venture. Um, yeah, you have contractors around you and you have age, real estate agents and you have closing agents and lots of lots of 1099 people, lots of lots of vendors and, and people that come in to help you. Um, but at the end of the day, you're running the show. You're doing the four big things that you do when, when you flip houses. You're doing acquisitions or you're running acquisitions. You're doing the rehab or you're running the rehab. You're doing the disposition or, or managing the disposition and you're raising the money. I mean, all four of those things, you, you don't generally have a big team to do those things because it's just hard to scale a big team in, in, when you're flipping houses. The profits aren't there. The margins aren't there. Um, unless you're doing real high-end houses, the, the deal size isn't there. Uh, but in multifamily, the thing I love about multifamily is it really is a team sport. When you're doing a $10 million deal or a $50 million deal, um, it's not something that I could ever do myself. Um, it's not something that anybody or very few people can do themselves. Typically, you have to be part of a, a team because things are very specialized. I mean, the acquisitions piece, you need some of the best acquisitions people in the world to be finding deals in this market. The renovation piece, to be renovating a 200 or 400 or 600 unit apartment complex, it's not like flipping a house. You need to have really good systems and processes. You need to really know the renovation side of things. Uh, managing the property. I mean, you have to know the asset management side. You have to know how to carry out a business plan. You have to know how to increase and reposition rents. You have to know how to um, decrease expenses and, and, and improve the efficiency of the management. And then on the sales side, that's a whole other world where you have to really know the market and be able to work with the brokers and know how to position the company for sale. And then finally, there's that raising funds piece. And that's a whole world by itself, whether you're dealing with raising debt through a broker and you're going like just typical, like getting loans, um, or you're going out to private investors or institutions and you're raising equity, people that come in as partners. And I mean, that's a full-time job in itself, those two things. So when you do multifamily, you really need to figure out what are you great at? And then you need to surround yourself with people who are great at everything else. And so that's what I loved about multifamily. It allowed me to focus on what I was really great at and then bring in people who are literally the best in the world at all the other stuff. And now it becomes a team sport. It it's, goes from, from playing tennis to playing basketball. Um, goes from being you, you're self-reliant and you have to do everything and be the best versus you have to be able to put together the best team and, and manage that team in a way that not only is everybody fantastic, but working together, they're better than the sum of their parts. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. I, the, the, the whole team game part of multifamily and commercial real estate, it's really interesting because when you get into other businesses, it, it feels more competitive and kind of like if you, if you have the secret sauce, you keep it close to your vest. You don't, you don't tell everybody about it. Um, whereas when you're in this commercial real estate world, everybody's sharing ideas, everybody's trying to partner, everybody's trying to see how they can help you, uh, rather than just looking about, oh, well, how can you help me? Kind of, I call it, <laughs> I don't, I'm going to get in trouble here, but the, uh, the Hollywood mentality where it's like, you know, what can you do for me? You know, yeah. oh, you just drive a three series. You probably can't help me. So <laughs> it's a yeah. different, different attitude. Absolutely. I, I, I like to refer to it as coopetition. Um, yeah. it's like there are deals that you're going to do with other people and, and, and then there are deals you're going to do yourself and you may come back to those people later. You may never come back to them, but everybody kind of looks out for each other because you never know when you may end up in a deal with somebody that previously you were competing against. 
And so anytime that you're not in a deal with somebody, you're still treating them as if, well, the next deal we could end up being partners or the deal after that we could end up being partners. Because it really is, it's, it's a small industry. Everybody knows each other. And we really, the, the, again, going back to the sum of the parts is, is greater um, than the parts themselves. I mean, uh, working together, we can really do a whole lot more than if we just are purely competitive and, and, and try and take each other down. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of going back, there's a there's a lesson to be learned about how, you know, you were transitioning from house flipping and you were the best at it. And then you're like, OK, I want to go into multifamily, into syndication. You went and you sought out someone that was already in the game that knew what they were doing, that had the experience. And you said, what can I do to help you? What, what yep. value can I bring to you to help you so you can teach me what you've done? And, and there's a lot of value to be found there in, in that lesson for, for folks that are trying to, um, you know, get into the active side. A lot of listeners out there are passive investors already. Um, and they're, you know, maybe thinking about, well, maybe I want to do in the active side. And they're like, well, what can I do? Because a, lo- a lot of attorneys, especially in uh, doctors and, and folks like that, they, they think they have this one track mind. They're only trained to do one thing. And they're like, what value can I provide to somebody else? But there are a lot of skills uh, that you've learned in your W-2 profession that you can apply um, to help um, other folks that are already in the industry. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I talk about it a lot, but even outside of real estate, I do a lot of advisory work and, and um, I'm, I'm still pretty active in the tech world. And I find companies that kind of bridge that gap between technology and real estate. We all, we all know about the Zillows and the Airbnb type companies. There are a lot of startup companies in that space too called prop tech, property technology type companies. And so um, I love to use my experience, my knowledge, my relationships to go into those companies and help them grow their companies. In return, I'm not an employee. I'm not even a 1099 contractor. In return, I'm getting equity so that if I can help make them successful, ultimately my my equity is going to be worth something. I'm going to be successful as well. And so what I like to tell everybody, like um, figure out what you're good at and then figure out who needs that expertise and then figure out how you can offer that expertise in a way that isn't trading necessarily hours for dollars. Figure out how you can trade your expertise, your knowledge, your Rolodex, your whatever it is um, for, for equity or potentially passive income um, so that, that you can grow potentially many fold as opposed to I charge $200 an hour or $300 an hour. I mean, everybody loves $300 an hour, but the minute you stop working, you stop making that money. But if you can get equity, that equity can work for you for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough for a lot of the W2s out there listening. They're, they're highly paid professionals. It's tough to get off of that treadmill. Um, yep. for, for some folks, it's easier because they're not making as much money. But for the, the lawyers, the doctors out there that are making a, a good amount of money in their profession, it's tough to, to try to see, um, you know, to stop trading time for money. Um, but yep. you've got to kind of see through the weeds there. Yeah. And well, what I tell people is, look, there, there's two types of income. There's your active income. That's the stuff that, that you're trading your, your time for, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or you're a house flipper or you're a consultant or you're a small business owner, whatever it is, that thing that when you stop working, you stop making money. And then there's a passive income. It's the thing you trade money for money. So you put your money out there and hopefully it continues to come back to you for, for, for the rest of your life or at least the next several years. Um, and so what I like to tell people is don't think about those the same. Those are completely different. And um, figure out for your active income, figure out what the highest and best use of your time is. If you're going to make more money as an attorney than you are flipping houses, don't flip houses just because you eventually want to retire on real estate. You can always use real estate for the passive side of things, but if you're going to make 
more dollars per hour as an attorney or a doctor or a consultant, then do that because you want to get out of that active income as quickly as possible. And the way you do that is you make as much as you can and you move it over to the passive side. So focus on whatever it is that's generating the most dollars per hour for a shorter period of time so that you can then start moving that money over to, to the passive side and start building up the passive side. And, and don't, don't, People ask me all the time, should I flip houses or should I buy rentals? And, and I'm constantly telling them that's not the right question to ask. Flipping houses is your active income. Compare that to all the other potential active incomes you could have. And rentals is passive income. Compare that to all the other passive investments you could make. And so don't say flipping houses or, or rentals. Say, should I be flipping houses or should I be an attorney? And don't say, should I be flipping houses or rentals? Say, should I be doing rentals or should I be investing in, in syndications or dividend generating stocks or something else? And think of them very differently. And, 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 um, and then secondly, make sure as much of that active income as you can, move it over to the passive side so that you can start that snowball rolling. I mean, compound interest is, is, the, key to, is the key to financial freedom. And the sooner you can put more money to work, the faster it'll compound and the sooner you can start to live off. Of it. Yeah. I love that, man. I mean, a lot of folks, you know, calls that I take, they're like, Hey, they're attorneys. Should I, should I quit my job or how do I quit my job? I'm like, if you want to quit your job, don't, don't be hasty about it. First of all, you're probably yep. making a good amount of money in your active income. You, you just need to figure out a way to transition that active to, to passive income uh, yep. and don't just quit your job. Um, it's very difficult to flip houses, to do an HGTV fix and flip while you're working at a big law firm or something like that full time. I tried to do it. I didn't do it very well. Um, you're not even going to make it nearly as much money as you would as a doctor, or as an attorney, unless you get to level it like you did, Jay. But that takes time and that takes um, you know, a buildup of accumulation of skills and, and money to be able to, to get to that level. Yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a math equation. I mean, um, your, your passive income or your ability to build up enough income to be able to retire, whatever your number is, is based on how much can you put in per month into that, that wheel, that, that passive income growth machine? Um, how much are you generating every year on what you're putting in? So what do your returns look like? And three, how long do you have to compound it? And so everybody can go out into a compound interest calculator and say, okay, I have $5,000 a month that I can invest passively and I can return 12% per year and I need $6 million to retire. Well, based on those three numbers, you can now figure out that fourth variable, which is how long is it going to take? Um, and so figure out how much do you have per month to put in? What's the rate of return you can generate and, and how much do you need? And that'll tell you how long it's going to take or figure out how much you have to put in, how much your return is going to be and how long you want to spend. And that'll tell you how much you'll end up with at the end. Either way, you want to look at it. Um, but again, it's, it's a pretty simple math equation, but too many people don't actually do that equation or they don't think about it till too late. And they think, I wish I would have taken that $5,000 a month that I was spending on my, my, my second home in, in the Bahamas and put that into real estate so that I could have been compounding it. And so now I could buy that home for cash five years or 10 years later. Absolutely. Attorneys hate math, but I think they can handle handle that little equation. Yep. <laughs> um, I want to take a step back for a minute because you know you you got into house flipping in 2008, which is kind of like around the around the the big crash. Um, and now we're kind of at the height of a market. We don't know where that height's going to end, but we're we're definitely in it, right? Yeah. So can you maybe 
compare and contrast, um, you know, getting into, let's say, one real estate venture in the middle of a crash compared to getting into another venture kind of towards, uh, towards the upswing? Yeah. So it's one of the reasons I like multifamily and I like commercial and I like syndication. Um, anytime you're doing purely transactional deals, buying something and then selling it, not generating any cash flow in between, um, you run a risk. If the market turns in the middle of the transaction, you're going to lose money. And you don't have a lot of ways to mitigate that risk. Whereas if you're buying something like an apartment complex, or even if you're buying a rental property, or you're buying a self-storage complex, or you're buying anything that cash flows, the nice thing is if the market turns, you may not be in a great position. You may not be thrilled with, with what's happening with the value of your assets. But if you're still generating cash flow, you can weather that storm. Maybe it's going to take the average recession lasts about 18 months. And so if you can make enough income that you can keep yourself afloat for 18 months, or maybe it's, it's a horrible recession and it lasts three or four years, if you're still making income and you can keep yourself afloat for three or four years, the market's going to come back. And so when we do our multifamily deals, yeah, we typically say we're planning to hold three to five years, but we also do all the, all the, all the underwriting um, to ensure that if we have to hold for six years or eight years or even nine or 10 years, that the numbers still work because again, who knows what's going to happen three years down the road, we could have a major recession that lasts four years. And now we're seven years down the road. I want to know that, that my multifamily investments in seven years, they're probably going to be producing more cash flow. We're probably going to see um, more growth in terms of population. We're probably going to see more growth in terms of, of employment. Hopefully we're going to see more wage growth once we come out of that recession. So all of the, all the, all the economic indicators that kind of lead towards value growth and multifamily are going to happen over those seven years if I can just get my property seven years and not lose it. With a flip, well, I'm not generating any, any, any income. So if the bank calls the loan due or, or if my, my two-year loan comes due and I can't refinance, I'm screwed. But in a multifamily, I just waited an extra couple of years and, and I'm probably in a better position than I was um, anyway, so so that's one of the reasons I love multifamily because um, we can't predict what the economy is going to do in the next couple of years. Um, but I do know that whatever the economy does, it's probably going to come back in the next five or ten, and I'm still going to have the property. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Look, that kind of rolls into to this next question. You know, how do how does a passive investor that's kind of vetting a sponsor? How do they how do they check kind of the boxes to see if those sponsors are you know, taking the extra measures to look into those risks that you just mentioned, to, to mitigating those risks, to taking those risks into account in their underwriting and things like that. How can they, you know, best, uh, you know, bet the sponsor to make sure that they're, they're, they're thinking of those things? Yeah. So I invest in a lot of other people's syndications as well as my own. And so when I do that, I kind of look at five areas for due diligence anytime I, I invest in a, in a syndication. Um, number one is the team. And that's probably the most important thing for a lot of people. I, I, I have been pleasantly surprised that a lot of our investors have recognized that team is the most important aspect of the deal. Um, I, I know in, in the flipping world, everybody was concerned about the, the deal. Nobody cared about what, what was my experience. But in the multifamily world, uh, a lot of investors recognize that the team has to be great. So number one is the team. Number two is location. Um, location is, is often overlooked. Um, but at the end of the day, the thing that's going to drive value for multifamily and for commercial real estate in general 
is going to be population growth. So if you want more people coming into an area, employment growth. So you want more employers coming into an area that will bring more people in. You want wage growth because that will ultimately drive rents up and you want employment diversity. Um, you want to know that if one industry takes a big hit, so for example, um, we won't we're, we invest in Houston, but we won't invest in the energy corridor of Houston because it's so reliant on oil and gas that if the oil and gas industry took a big hit, the real estate around there would probably take a big hit. So we want to see that there, there's good employment diversity. Um, but at the end of the day, location is that next big thing. So team, location. Number three is the deal itself. So you need to know that the deal is is going to stand on its own. I want to know that if I took a deal and I handed it to pretty much any other syndicator, they couldn't mess it up too badly. Um, obviously, again, we're going to go back to the team is super important, but I want the deal also to stand on its own. And I want to know that the business plan for the deal, um, the hold period, um, the, the numbers and, the, um, and the, the underwriting, the pro forma for the, for the property makes sense. So team, location, deal. Number four is the returns. So obviously, when I invest with somebody, I'm in it for the money. And so I want to see that the returns are commensurate with the risk. I want to know that the returns, um, if somebody tells me I'm going to get 10% returns in this deal versus 20% returns in another deal, I want to know, well, why am I going to settle for lower returns? I want the answer to be because it's a lot lower risk or because you're going to get your money back a lot sooner, which is going to allow you to compound it or whatever the answer is. But I want to know that the, the, the returns make sense given everything else. And then finally uh, is the risks. At the end of the day, I'm always going to sit down with the, with the syndicator and I'm going to say, what are you most concerned about here? Like where, if I'm going to lose money on this deal, where am I most likely going to lose money? They say, oh, there's no shot of losing money. I walk away because we all know every deal has risks and every syndicator knows what those risks are. And they're thinking about those risks. I just want them to tell me. Um, so if I'm going to lose money on this deal, where am I most likely, why am I most likely to lose money if I'm going to lose money? So those are the five things that I look for. Um, talking about each individually a little bit more. So the team, I like to know that um, one, I want to see how many deals the team has done together. Um, because um, again, like a basketball team, um, you can put the best basketball players in the world together. Um, and if they've never played on the court, together, they're not going to be necessarily the best team out there. You can buy another team with five inferior players who have been playing together for 20 years, and they're probably going to be better because they know each other better. Um, so I like to see teams that have worked together for a while. I like to see teams that have gone full cycle in deals. Um, so it's, it's easy to buy 10,000 units. It's hard to buy 10,000 units and also 10, sell 10,000 units for a profit. So I want to see that if, if a team has bought a lot of deals, they've at least sold some for a profit. Um, I want to see a team that's putting their own money in the deals. So um, I, I, want, I want people that have skin in the game. If they don't have skin in the game, and I've seen, seen plenty of syndicators that don't like to put money in the deals, well, they need to sweeten the pot for me somehow. So maybe they're saying, we're not going to take any profits until at least year three, or we're going to give you a better preferred return, a better split um, than you would get if we were putting money in the deal. I want to know if you're not putting money in, that you're at least giving me something that aligns our interests and ensures that you're going to be working hard, even though you might not have as much financial risk. Um, so those are the types of things I like to see in the team. I like to see things like at least one or two people working full time. Um, if everybody's part time, that's kind of a little bit scary. Obviously, not everybody has to be full time because there are a lot of jobs on a GP team that aren't full time jobs. 
There are a lot of jobs that might stop the day you purchase the property. Like the person that's raising money, eh, their job's pretty much done other than, than communicating status when, when the property is purchased. But I do want to know that whoever's managing the asset is doing it full time. Um, so that's, that's kind of the team stuff. Location, um, again, population growth, employment growth, wage growth, and employment diversity. So those are the four big things I look for. Um, next is the, the, the business plan. So I want to see the biggest question when, when somebody goes in and, and does what I do, which is a value-add multifamily. Basically, they buy it, they raise the, the, the value of the property, and then they sell it for a big profit. Um, where is that profit coming from? Generally, the profit's coming from raising the rents. There's also some lowering the expenses, but at the end of the day, raising the rents is kind of the big thing that's going to generate the big profits in multifamily. And so I want to know, how are you raising the rents? And two, when you tell me that you're raising the rents from X to Y, where is Y coming from? Show me the comps that tell me that Y is a reasonable new rent, market rent for this property after you've done the renovation. So I want to see the comps. Um, so that's kind of the deal. The returns speaks for themselves. I, I want to see like uh, the structure of the deal. So when's the money coming back to me? Um, is it paid monthly? Is it paid quarterly? Um, what do the return? Um, what do the returns look like? What's the preferred return? So is it a low preferred return, which means that the syndicators are getting paid sooner, or is it a higher preferred return, which means the syndicators have to do more for me before they take anything home? Um, so that speaks for itself. And then for the risks. Um, I want to know both the catastrophic risk. So what's the thing that's like going to make me lose all my money? Is there something out there that can cause me to lose all my money? Hopefully the answer is no, but there are probably some risks that are bigger than others. So we do a lot of deals in Houston. If somebody were to say to me, what's the biggest risk on your deals? The answer is generally going to be weather. If we have a really bad hurricane, if we're in a flood zone, we probably have flood insurance and we have hurricane insurance. But if it's in a place that's never experienced the negative impacts of a flood or a hurricane, and we are not required to have flood insurance, but there's still a massive hurricane that wipes out that property, that's not going to be good. We're going to have to pay for that ourselves. So what's our mitigation there? Eh, we don't have a great one. Um, luckily, the risk is really low. We don't buy in areas where there is that risk. And if there is, we're going to get flood insurance. But I do want my investors to know that no matter where you invest, Weather's a risk, and especially in, in, in Houston, if we see a storm bigger than anything we've seen in the last 50 years, some of our properties could be at risk. And then there are the smaller risks. So maybe there's five other complexes being renovated all around us. Maybe there's Class A, brand new Class A being developed all around us. So basically, our absorption of units is going to slow down because there are so many more units. Um, maybe there's uh, one big employer in the area. Amazon just built a warehouse um, that's employing 8,000 people. Well, what happens if Amazon has a bad year and has to lay off 4,000 of those people? How's that going to affect us? So um, so risks is the next thing. And, and the way I, I approach it is I literally sit down with the, with the syndicator and say, what keeps you up at night? What are the biggest things you're concerned about? And so those are the things that I do. I have no problem basically saying to a syndicator, I need 15 or 30 minutes of your time to ask these questions. Typically, the good ones will either find the times themselves or have somebody on their team uh, that will sit down and answer these questions. If they're not willing to answer those questions, well, that's probably a good indication that that's not a good team to be working with. Yeah. Uh, for our listeners out there, that breakdown was incredible. Rewind that, listen to those five items again. That's a, a quick but 
thorough and awesome rundown of, of what you need to do, um, just as, at least as starting points for your due diligence. And that's, that's great that you said, if they won't book a call with you, either themselves or an investor relations person on their team, then you, it, it's time to, you can just walk away and, and, and look at yeah. the next, look at the next deal. Um, one question I had on the deal. So a lot of folks, you know, it, it, it's kind of overwhelming to see, you know, an underwriting model or something like that. And, you know, being a passive investor, I don't know how much you even want to dive into it. Some people do. Some people want to nerd out on it. Most people don't. And we don't generally have access to the T12 or the rent roll or anything like that. What are maybe some quick tips on how to maybe proof through that pro forma to make sure that it's, you know, the, the, the assumptions are reasonable and the pro forma is, you know, generally a reasonable prediction of, of what we might expect from that investment. Yeah. Well, let me start. Let me let me take a step back before I answer that particular question and, and just say that even for you and me, I mean, you know how to how to do an underwriting. I know how to do an underwriting. If you or I were going to invest in somebody's deal, Joe Smith's deal, um, we're probably not going to have enough information, even though we know this business really well and we know the underwriting models really well we're probably not going to have enough information that we're going to be able to know for certain that Joe Smith's not trying to scam us out of money. So um, if, if, if Joe Smith is really smart and, and he could probably put together an underwriting um, that, that could fool us because we're just not going to be putting in as many dozens of hours underwriting as he and his team are. Um, so the number one thing I, I would I would say is make sure you trust your syndicator. This goes back to why team is so important, um, because there, there's two types of things that Joe Smith can do. Um, one, he could do a bad job of underwriting um, and come up with bad numbers. That's not good, but that's not nearly as bad as Joe Smith wanting to scam us out of money. So number one is make sure Joe Smith's not the kind of guy who wants to scam us out of money. Um, and so work with people who are reputable. Um, and that's why, like, I would invest with you before I would invest with 95% of syndicators out there because you're an attorney. You pass the bar. You know that if you go and you, somebody finds out that you're trying to scam somebody, well, you're putting your entire career at risk. Um, and, and so what I tell people is, so what, what do you have that really proves that this person is on the up and up? And maybe it's a track record. Maybe it's 10 or 15 years of doing deals. Um, maybe it's, uh, I, I like to think with me, um, I've been doing this business for 15 years. I've, I've done thousands of deals with, with hundreds or thousands of people. And if you go out on the internet, nobody's going to, you're not going to find anything that's written negatively about me. So that's a good sign. Um, but make sure that there's something out there that gives you faith in that, that, that syndicator, even if it's just somebody else that's invested in a couple of deals with them. Um, so that's number one. So that kind of, that's the way to rule out that catastrophic, they're trying to scam you risk. Then there's the, 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 the more likely, what if they just didn't do a good job of underwriting risk? And so for that, I would say for people that have very little knowledge of, of how the underwriting works and how the numbers work, it can be really difficult. Um, and so what I like to do is, or what I recommend people do is, sit down and ask to do a Zoom call for 15 minutes with the investor relations person and say, hey, will you kind of walk me through the high-level underwriting? Um, and at least force them to go through and then just ask questions. When they say something, even if you have no idea what you're talking about, and they say, well, it looks like um, we're going to be able to, uh, to um, reduce uh, expenses by implementing a RUBS system, blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay, well, what is RUBS and, and how does that work? 
and at least make them explain it to you. At least then you'll get an idea that they're not making it up as they're going along, or at least you'll get that, uh, that, that confidence that it sounds like they know what they're talking about. But the biggest thing that I would say is that whole comps thing. And this is a question that, that a lot of people don't like to ask. Um, but I actually, and, and when people ask me this question, it always makes me nervous because it's the hardest part of the business, but it impresses me when people do, um, say to, say to the underwriting or, or the investor relations person, what are the comps that you used for your post renovation market rents? So again, the thing that drives values in multifamily is after the renovation is completed, in theory, you should be able to bring your rents up higher and your rents, those higher rents. You should be able to figure out what they are by looking at other units that have already been renovated and seeing what their rents are. So if I buy 123 Main Street and I know I'm going to put $8 million into it, well, now that property is going to comp out to 678 Main Street. And well, what are the rents at 678 Main Street? And so by asking, hey, so you're buying 123 Main Street, what are the comps for the rents after you renovate? And they tell you, well, it's going to be 678 Main Street and, and 123 Smith Street, whatever it is. You can then go look up those properties and say, okay, well, it looks like a two bedroom at those properties is renting for 1200 Now I go back to the, the investor relations person and, or whatever information they gave me and I see, oh, okay, after renovation, they have their rents at 1200 Makes sense. If that's a reasonable comp, they now have the rents at, at kind of where they should be. If he says that 678 Main Street's a comp and you go look in a two bedroom at 678 Main Street's 1200, but their underwriting tells you that after they do the renovation, they're going to be charging 1500. Well, why are you now $300 above this property that you said was a comp? Um, and so that to me is kind of the, the first thing that I look at or the biggest thing I look at is what are the comps that they're using? And do, does just a kind of first pass jumping on apartments.com or calling the, the, the complex and asking them what different things rent for, does that coincide with what they're telling you their post-renovation rents are going to be? Yeah, I love that, man. I mean, it's, it's not as simple as just going into an old dilapidated apartment building and saying, I'm going to put granite countertops and hardwood flooring and stainless steel appliances in there, and then I'm going to triple the rent or double the rent. Right. It's not that easy. If it's not in the right area um, that can support those, those market rents or that have potential tenants that want those types of things, it doesn't work. So that's why that's so important to check those comps to see what's around those apartments that you're going to be investing in to see if, if they can achieve those, those pro forma rents. Absolutely. All right, man, before we jump into the freedom floor, what's one last golden nugget for our listeners? Yeah. So um, again, um, what I would tell people is um, figure out your highest and best use on your active side and then for the passive side, figure out how you're going to scale. And I know a lot of people like to invest in a whole lot of different things, um, but I'm a big fan of, of doing some work so that you don't have to diversify too much. Diversification is great, but diversification is for people who aren't really an expert in anything. If you want to get your best returns, the way to get your highest level of returns is not to have to diversify. And the best way not to have to diversify is to get knowledgeable about whatever you're investing in. So if you decide you want to invest, and I'll use syndications just because that's what, what you and I do, so it's, it's an easy example. If you want to, to invest in syndications and that's how you want to grow your nest egg, um, my recommendation is get as much information about syndications as you can. Pick up a good book on syndications. 
Go find somebody that does syndications and say, hey, I'd love to pay you a thousand bucks for five hours of your time for you just to walk me through what a typical deal looks like or what the underwriting looks like. Or go sit in on a hundred uh, uh, multifamily syndication investor uh, uh, videos, presentations, so you can see all the different things they're talking about and become as much of an expert there as you can. So that way you're reducing your risk without having to do a lot of diversification. So focus on is whatever your highest and best use of time is on your on your active income and then become as knowledgeable as you can um, for, for whatever you're investing in passively. What I like to say on the passive side is um, it's not truly passive. It, nothing's truly passive. Um, but the best investments are the one where all the work is done up front. You do your due diligence and then it becomes passive. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And, and then what you can do, though, is diversify within that strategy, right? You know, Absolutely. Yeah, different asset types can have uh, different business strategy, value add, or maybe you're dealing yep. with just a class A um, where, where you're chasing yield or you know, across different cities, different geographies, or across different sponsorship teams. There's other ways to diversify within you know, that same type of investment strategy. Yep. All right, man, let's jump into the Freedom Four. It's time for the Freedom Four. What's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? So for me, it's um, admitting when I need a break. Um, I know so many people that it's a badge of honor to work 80 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, never take a vacation. I'm just the opposite. If I wake up one morning and I'm tired and I don't feel like working and I don't feel like I'm going to be productive, um, I will grab a book. I might even turn on the TV. I might say to my wife, hey, let's go to breakfast or let's go spend the day. Let's go to a movie. And I have no qualms with just saying, I need a break today. Today's not going to be a productive day. I don't need to pretend to work um, just so I can have that badge of honor that, that I work hard. Um, and so, yeah, that's, and, and that's one of the, the nice things about real estate. I mean, I, I don't have a 100% flexible um, work-life balance. I can't do anything I want anytime I want. But if I want to take a couple hours off, I normally can. And so I'm not scared to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great answer. With all your success, what is one limiting belief that you've crushed along the way and how did you get past it? Yeah, I still have a lot of them. Um, I think we all do. Um, but um, I'd say the biggest one is that um, doing a big deal is not that much harder than doing a little deal. Um, I'm not going to say a $100 million deal is, is just as easy as a $100,000 deal. But if you're smart enough to do a $100,000 deal, you're smart enough to do a $100 million deal. And the people that are out there doing those $100 million deals, I mean, we have we, we now have $100 million assets under management. I remember a couple of years ago looking at the people that, that had nine figures under management and thinking, they're different. I can't do that. These are people, they, they, went, to, to some, they, they went to some school that I will never go to, or they were born into something that I was never born into, or they know people I don't know, or, or whatever it is. No, they, they're normal people. And the only difference between them and me was I wasn't thinking big enough and I wasn't willing to take some risks and I wasn't willing to acknowledge the fact that doing, again, a $100 million deal is certainly within my capabilities. So that, that to me has been probably the, the biggest one. And it's made it a lot easier for me now to say, okay, $50 million deal, let's go do it and not, not think twice. Yeah, I had a similar experience working in, uh, in, in big law 
um, doing house flips, doing single family rentals, things like that. And even though my clients are doing 50, $100 million deals and I'm helping them close those deals, right. it was just like the mindset shift that, wait a minute, I, I can do those deals too. I, I'm actually giving them advice on how to, how to do this thing. I need to step up my game and, and, and take some risks. Exactly. It's yeah. the difference between people doing 100 million and 100,000. It's, it's all mindset. Yep, absolutely. What's one actual step our listeners can do right now to start creating more freedom? Um, take action. So um, the, the biggest thing that, that, um, that I see stopping people um, is just this fear to take the first step. Um, and I know this doesn't apply to a lot of your listeners, but um, I, I talk to a lot of people who want to get into house flipping or they want to get into rentals and they've been thinking about it for years and they, they just never take that first step and then they end up giving up. Um, one of the, the, the few truisms I see in this business is that there are two types of people I meet. Um, number one, I meet people that have never done a deal. They've done zero deals. Um, and maybe they, they're still working on it. Maybe they've given up whatever it is, but they've done zero deals. And then the other type of people I meet in this business are people that have done a lot of deals. They've done five or 10 or 20 or 50 deals. There's one type of person I never, ever meet in this business. And that's somebody that's done one deal. Because if you get that one deal, you're going to get the second and the third and the fifth and the tenth. Nobody does one deal and then says, okay, that's it. I'm done. I can't do it. I can't do this. Um, so what I like to tell people is, and, that, and that, that applies to a lot of things in life. If you can get over the hump and do it once, you're going to get that snowball effect and it gets easier the second time. It gets even easier the third. It gets even easier the hundredth. So don't give up until, until you achieve that first step or that first, uh, the first iteration of whatever it is you want to achieve, because that's going to get that snowball rolling. Yeah. Yeah. We preach that on this show all the time. I'm just like, you know, just do a deal, just invest in a deal so you can get that experience and it'll just kind of open up your mind to other opportunities. You'll just see opportunity all around you once you just do one deal. Last but not least, how has passive income made your life better? Uh, passive income has given me the ability and the confidence to raise a family. Um, before this, my biggest concern with raising a family was I didn't want to be, I, I had, my parents were great, um, but my parents were always working. Um, and I didn't want to be the same type of, of father that, that my parents were. And again, they were fantastic, um, but um, I wanted to always be there. I wanted to be at every soccer game, every piano recital, Every, I wanted to be able to go into school for the parent-teacher conferences. Um, and so passive income has really given me the ability um, to, to build my life around my family as opposed to building my life around my job. Love that. Love that. Man, it's been fantastic, brother. We're going to listen and find out more about you. Yeah. Uh, anybody that wants to get more info, go to www.connectwithjscott, just the letter J, Scott, connectwithjscott.com. Um, and that'll link you out to everything you might want to find. Awesome, man. Talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Seth. All right. Mr. J. Scott from Master House Flipper to Multifamily Syndicator. He's a master of creating profitable, well-oiled business machines. I've been reading Jay's Bigger Pockets books for years, and it's awesome to have the opportunity to have him on the show today. Major key, focus. Focus on transitioning your active income to passive income and don't get distracted. All right, if you're ready for a change, you're ready to take action, partner with us on one of our next passive real estate deals. Go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and join our Esquire Passive Investor Club. 
All right, kiddos, as always, enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.